if you are allergic, you have equal potential to react, you know, and treating peanut as if it, you know, it, it, it is sort of the biggest, baddest kid on the block is, is, is physiologically not accurate. I know what the epidemiology says. A lot of that is skewed data that can be picked apart and shown that, you know, it's orchestrated that kids with these allergies are told they are more severe. So you orchestrate more emergency room trips and things like that, whereas other ones are, are treated differently. But no, I mean, all foods to an allergic kid um, have equal potential to cause anaphylaxis or a mild reaction. And, and, and we, we shouldn't be stratifying or segregating certain foods as, as more severe than others, you know, treated universally. Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt, the podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried and proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hello and welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alice Hoyt. I am delighted that you are joining me for part two of my interview with Dr. Matthew Greenhot. If you have not already listened to part one, stop the episode now and go back and listen to part one because we're going to dive right on in back into the interview with Dr. Greenhot and also Go to foodallergyinyourkiddo.com, sign up for my mailing list, and send me a message. Let me know what you liked about this interview and what you didn't like about this interview. I'm expecting some feedback on this interview because in talking with some of my food allergy mamas, I am hearing that it's interesting how Dr. Greenhot and I are speaking somewhat matter-of-factly about some of these issues. And what it's really making me even more deeply realize is that we as allergists really need to better equip our patients with good information, with good resources. And we actually talk about that. My co-host Pam and I talk about that in an episode that we just recorded. Um, So listen to the first part of this interview in the earlier podcast episode, come back and listen to this one um, or keep listening if you've already listened to part one. But please go to foodallergyandyourkiddo.com, sign up for the mailing list, send me a message and let me know what, what you're liking, what you're not liking, what further resources you need to live your best life with your kiddo and food allergies. I want you to be as prepared as possible. Your allergist wants you to be as prepared as possible. And as the number of kiddos and adults continues to increase regarding who has food allergy, we need to better equip our families. Okay, let's dive right in to the rest of this interview with Dr. Matthew Greenhaut. I will back that last statement up is that if your child can be treated, stabilized and go back to class, that's in their best interest rather than going to an emergency room where they're likely to sit there for the next four to six hours, receive no more care, bring you out of work, a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs and whatnot. Like we can be smarter about what we're doing and it can be contextualized. And if you have a school nurse or somebody who's trained to assess, then they should assess. They shouldn't just send somebody on an automatic pathway because, you know, one size does not fit all. And I think maybe that's the best um, 
that's 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 sort of emblematic of the entire paper that you, you know one size does not fit all and you have to be very careful um and, and you know think your way through the situation you you want this for your child you want what's in their best interest not just some default action that you know um you know, some people can't afford to take off work. There's again, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's sort of a, a play on one of the laws of gravity or, or something like that. I forget what it is. But, um, well, you raise not, a great point, especially regarding what support is available in the school. Some schools have clinics where they have doctors. And then you have some schools that share a nurse amongst four different schools. And even the EMS that arrives might not even have epinephrine. Um, yeah. So there's tremendous heterogeneity and absolutely one size does not fit all. So I think, you know, I have, I have kept you for a long time, but I want to ask you two more questions if sure. we can. Um, the first one is more about how do you counsel families on school regarding peanut-free campuses? What do you say to them? And then also regarding travel, that's a, that's a big um, concern to many people in the food allergy family. And then oh. I'll come back with my last one. So let me add into the second one first. Travel is much easier. Um, and I've, I've, I, I, I've done most of the studies that are out there in the literature on sort of reactions on airplanes or whatnot. It happens, but it's, it's, it's rare. Most people with a food allergy you choose to fly will not react in flight, but a couple will. That, that happens every year. So have your uh, epinephrine with you in your carry-on. Um, you know, you, you can't rely on, and I've, I've actually, unfortunately had to play doctor on a plane a couple of times. Um, you can't just access that kit. The captain has to give you permission. And sometimes they call a third party service who really doesn't know what they're doing in that, you know, they're not allergists. They're not walking you through. So like have your own medicine with you because you'll be able to treat it quickly and effectively. And that's how we train you. We give you the action plan. We go through that, you know, just because you're in an airplane versus, you know, at, at a mall. We want you to do the same thing. Now, there's a little bit less that you can do at 35,000 feet, but the action itself is the same. That's, that's, it starts with that. The faster you treat a reaction, the sort of less likely you are to run into problems. So have your medicine with you. There are a couple of things that you can do. You can wipe down your tray tables and some of the surrounding surfaces. Um, they're disgusting and full of bacteria anyway. So getting back to sort of the allergy and infection things sort of come together. You don't want to culture one of those tray tables. Think about, you know, some of the worst passenger shaming behavior you've seen on the internet about feet and things up on. So wipe down those tables anyways, and bring your own food. Don't eat food that the airline provides. Those, those are gen three general things that will keep anybody out of, out of trouble. Asking to pre-board all these things, airline policies vary. You actually have no rights in the air. The air go, go and Google the Air, air Carrier Act of 1986. The pilot, if they think that you, you know, you may be alerting them, hey, my my family member has has certain needs and stuff like that. If the pilot thinks that you're too sick or gonna cause a problem that's gonna cause a five hundred thousand dollar per diversion cost to bring that plane down emergently, they're going to do what they think is common sense and say, I deem you too much of a risk to fly. So again, notification can be a two-way street, but it can also be a double-edged sword. Um, and they're not discriminating. They're actually just following like if you, if somebody said I'm 39 weeks and, you know, I was three centimeters yesterday and contracting, but you know, I want to go fly to Vegas today. They're not going to let you on the flight either. It's just think about the common sense of a health, like the, you don't want a health risk on, on, on an airplane. And if you notify the crew that there is a health risk, then they're, they're going to assess that. So, um, it's not necessarily discriminatory. Um, it, it, it is something that's written into the law, but, um, you know, notifying pre-boarding buffer zones, unproven 
they, they really don't work. I could show you scientific evidence that they don't work. Um, again, do things that you can control. Don't rely on the airline, wipe down your tables. Um, you know, uh, don't eat airline food and, and, and have your medicine and, and, and you should be generally fine. On, on you said plane. something about the pre-boarding. So I like yeah. the pre-boarding for families because it gives them peace of mind that they'll be able to get on the aircraft, clean up their area so that their toddler's not putting their hand down and grabbing a peanut, which at that age is also a choking hazard. Um, yes. so I do like the pre-boarding, um, yeah. It's not purposes. universally guaranteed. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it is, it is something that the airline, everybody wants to get on that plane. It, it's, it's something that will stress the air crew out who are not wanting to deal with a medical issue to begin with. Anyways, it, I think if you can ask for it and they give it to you, great, but it shouldn't be expected. I could make arguments that you probably want to be the last one on the plane. Cause if you're worried about buffer zones and things floating around, you want to enter that environment last. So you can do the final clean before anybody walks by and disrupts it. But again, that that's tomato, tomato, um, you know, and you, depending you, you, on which air, which airline, yeah. then yes. you might not be able to sit together if you waited till the end. So well, it's, yeah, Southwest is, uh, you know, an exercise in a free for all. I, uh, there's nuance I, to all of it. <laughs> yes. I live in Denver. I'm stuck on United. I, I'm a very loyal global services member. Um, I'm very happy, but I mean, they have their own thing. Every airline has, has their own thing. It's not uniform. They're private companies. They're, you know, they're not mm-hmm. going to, you, you shouldn't expect United, Delta, and whatnot to have uniform policies any more than you should to expect Starbucks, Dunkin', and Pete's Coffee to have any uniform policies in their stores. They're, they're totally separate companies. But um, now, going back to counseling with schools and things like that. So I start and end with the evidence. Hand washing, not sharing, wiping down surfaces, bringing your own food. Those are the tenants. And communication with other parents. Um, Legally, a 504 plan doesn't involve a physician. It is between the school and the parent. Often we are asked to intervene as an expert, but legally we, we are not party to that conversation per se. Um, 504 plans are an entitlement, an entitled right, you know, under a, a couple of disability acts. Um, Can you explain what that is for listeners who are not sure yeah, what we're talking about? So American with Disabilities or is the Rehabilitation Act Section 504. If, if there is a special medical need or a disability that it, 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 it entitles that, that person to have accommodations in, in, in a school, in a public school. Um, and it, it basically is a way for the school and the parent to agree that, okay, here are certain policies that we're going to do with X, Y, and Z. Um, it's it's used not only for kids with food allergies, for asthma, seizure disorders, ADHD, whatever it is. You know, it's an individualized plan that sort of says, okay, we recognize your child has this issue, and here's how we're going to work around it. And it's it, it it's sort of a it's quasi binding. I mean, it's legal, but it it's you know it, it's just a plan that everybody gets on the same page and how they're going to handle it, um, so that everybody knows ahead of time what they're going to do. Um, that has been used for food allergy, which um, can be considered a disability, not universally. And there are appellate cases that have struck that down. Uh, I, I know some of the prominent attorneys are very happy, though this is a disability, but legally it hasn't always been viewed like that. That's neither here nor there for the purposes of this podcast. But um, if you want a 504 plan, the school has to give it to you for a food allergy. And, and you know, that's that. Whether or not your allergist or your pediatrician is involved in it is something. I actually try to avoid getting involved in that. I will write a standard letter saying, here's what the evidence is and here's what I would recommend. And then it is up to the school because I'm not there and it's, it's really none of my business. Um, but hand washing, 
having epinephrine stocked at the school, cleaning surfaces, not sharing, and then communication and common sense things like don't use peanut butter on a pine cone for a craft if there's a peanut allergic kid. That, that, it's like, hey, doc, my arm hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. I mean, it's the same type of common sense thing. Like, you know, nobody, nobody's schooling is going to be deprived from not having the pine cone and peanut butter thing. There are other things that you can use. Um, you know, I'd almost rather them eat paste than use the peanut butter in that circumstance or something like that. But I mean, it's, it's, I'm probably dating myself. Do they still have paste jars in school? I, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I mean, my kid's got a, my kid's running a more complex operating system for his, like, sort of, he's sitting in his school and it doesn't matter. I mean, it's it, the things that they do now in school. Times have like, changed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a simpler person from simpler times, I guess. But the thing is stick to the evidence. Don't vary from the evidence. If, if, you know, while I understand that you want bans or things like that, that that's probably not the best way to solve the problem. But if that's what you and the school agree upon, you know, the allergists really don't have a place in that equation. I would just say there, there are no state policies that say you should ban peanut in, in a school where there's a peanut allergic child. If you're going to do bans, it should be in the least amount of area as possible. So do a classroom as opposed to the school or the cafeteria or whatnot. Um, I think you can be sensitive in some of the cuisine that is served, but understanding that there, there is that kid out there that only eats ranch dressing with something in it or, um, you know, peanut butter and jelly, or, I mean, I hope, I don't think very many kids are very well fish sticks, I guess was like, I, I don't know. It did, again, there are so many different things that are known to cause food allergy. If you think about it, everything could be banned, you know, right. Um, right. you know, the certain things are more common than others, but there is no one food that is more severe as an allergen than anything else that I will emphasize. It is a total myth to say that peanut allergy is more severe. I've seen some of the worst reactions to milk got one a week kid on a, on a research trial. Oh my God, that was one of the worst reactions I've ever seen in my life. So there are no harder or softer allergens. If you are allergic, you have equal potential to react, you know, and treating peanut as if it, you know, it is it, sort of the biggest, baddest kid on the block is, is, is physiologically not accurate. I know what the epidemiology says. A lot of that is skewed data that can be picked apart and shown that, you know, it's orchestrated that kids with these allergies are told they are more severe. So you orchestrate more emergency room trips and things like that, whereas other ones are are treated differently. But no, I mean, all foods to an allergic kid um, have equal potential to cause anaphylaxis or a mild reaction. And and, and we, we shouldn't be stratifying or segregating certain foods as as more severe than others, you know, treat it universally. Right. I have seen a school instead of having a peanut free table, which there's arguably some data that a peanut free table results in decreased incidence of anaphylaxis as measured by use of epinephrine. Um, Kind of. Right. We could pick that apart. But yeah, that one's the the Massachusetts study. Mm -hmm. um, But one school has kind of flipped that and they will have, if you're eating peanut butter, then you're going to come and sit at this other table. And so they're not alienating kids. And these are younger kids, um, like first, second, third, they're not alienating kids based on their uh, medical condition and saying, you have a peanut allergy. You need to go sit over here at this table by yourself and you can have one friend come with you. Um, which one of the reasons that I think so many kids, when they get to high school, don't let anybody know they have a food allergy because also by that time, they're the ones filling out their forms online, their health forms. So that's when we see just a drop off of self-reported food allergy. And yeah. um, 
I don't have the data to back this up yet, but I certainly suspect that that has to do with kids being teased, kids being treated differently based on their food allergy, and they don't want to deal with it anymore. Hi there, this is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right. We are now offering food allergy office hours for parents. These one-on-one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt. Yeah, I, there, there, there is a lot of that. I mean, it, 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 it is tough. I mean, it's not just food allergy per se. It's any difference between you and me. You know, there's somebody out there who will exploit it and be mean. And, and, you know, we saw it as kids, our kids are seeing it as kids. The topic will change, but this sort of trend to be mean to one another is sort of, I guess, hardwired into our DNA, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it, it, there can be consequences with, you know, if you spike somebody's food or something like that, you know, ha ha, very funny. No, no, not really. You can send that person to the emergency room if they're, you know, um, we have to be sensitive to that. But there are, there are degrees of precaution that you can layer in or layer out things that have more or less evidence, things that have more or less common sense and things that are more or less isolated to protecting you versus sort of putting in a blanket precaution against a lot of other people where it might not be necessary. And those are, those are the sub games that I think people need to think about just, you know, um, put yourself in the other person's shoes. What would you be willing to deal with? And just, I mean, everybody has, again, it is, I don't want to say that one student's rights are more than another's. You want to protect people who are vulnerable, but you also, you know, again, you, you have to understand what somebody's vulnerability may be. And that might be that, you know, this is the only thing that they will eat or they need. I, I don't know. I, people get very upset about this and I don't want to fuel a fire. And I'm talking in hypotheticals and not in specific situations. I'm just saying that everything can be an allergen to everybody. And there's some kid that might only eat that food. And, you know, um, you have to imagine that parent worrying about their nutritional status at school too, as in their minds being as concerning as like my kid could go to school and react to that. Again, every parent, you worry about your child and your, your child is the most important thing to you. And, you know, I'm not saying you don't give it about somebody else's child, but I mean, you care about your own children primarily and others, you know, peripherally to some degree or whatnot. And the thing is, is that everybody has to get along and be in that classroom for a certain set period of time. And by the way, you need to eat food at school. So we need to evolve strategies where, you know, we can feel that everybody has come to a win-win situation in that. And that that's really what this is. It's a very complex mm-hmm. negotiation. And if Involving we all our show a, proxies. <laughs> <laughs> if we all show a little grace and try to educate ourselves on what is what is accurate, what is good yes. evidence-based information, um, then I think we can get a lot farther than where we are now. And speaking of 
getting farther. I wanted to ask you last question. Um, Food allergy has come a long way. What excites you? What's on the horizon? What do you see working that excites you in this field? Um, well, you know, we've, we've got, we, we've now started treatments, you know, you've got FDA approved and then things that have been used without an FDA approval, just using common food stuff. So oral immunotherapy is certainly now hitting mainstream. Um, and there are a number of options there and the data are growing that show that that can work not for everybody and not without significant risks and trade-offs. Um, but for the right patient, that could be great. Um, but now we're looking at other things. So, you know, hopefully the epicutaneous patch will, will, will fix its issues and, and get back on the FDA approval timeline because that's an option that's very good for certain individuals. But we're looking at the next generation to biologics that really can knock off a number of things at the same time with a more simplified regimen. And I think that, you know, now you're moving from flip phone to early smartphone and eventually, you know, you'll get to the most latest and greatest iPhone in terms of treatment and everything will evolve and everything has evolved in medicine. But um, what really excites me, I think, are more biologically based treatments in the next couple of years, because you could treat multiple food allergies potentially at the same time in theory, as well as somebody's asthma or rhinitis or polyps or whatnot. And now um, the basic tenant of medicine is that very few people actually take the medicine that you tell them to on the schedule that you do. So if you can treat multiple things at once with the directly observed therapy, my guess is that people are going to get better just from that alone. <laughs> it's Excellent it, point. It, yeah. You know why, why, why? Yeah. So, I mean, that's what excites me, but I'm a researcher. I'm agnostic to the process, what I care about are the outcomes and then the decision-making that goes behind that. So, you know, everything can work within certain contexts and you just need to know, it's like, you know, you got a bunch of tools in a toolbox. You just need to know which tool to bring out when for what job. And it'll be as simple as that, I think eventually, but. That is an um, excellent point. And, and also highlights why you should see an allergist for food allergy. Um, Ideally one who is well-studied in food allergy and see that person at least every year, especially now with so many new therapies on the horizon. Yep. And talk, talk to your allergist about the therapies, you know, and realize that just because maybe therapy isn't the right choice for you and that is okay as well. There is mm-hmm. nothing wrong with sort of living with a food allergy and avoiding it. That is a perfectly fine strategy and that may work better for some people than others. So don't feel bad that maybe you don't want to do therapy or you're not eligible or even, you know, maybe you tried a food allergy therapy and it didn't work. Like again, there are many different ways. What am I, my, my track coach in high school? So anyway, you slice a pig, it's still pork. You know, there are many ways that you can, or any many multiple ways to skin a cat, a number of, of very sort of corny things there. But again, lots of options can work. And, you know, in the end, like I tell every parent, you know, your child might have peanut allergy or milk allergy. Don't worry. They're still going to go to Harvard. And if they're, you know, or, you know, in the worst case scenario, they go to Ohio state or something like that. Um, <laughs> I'm a raving Michigan fan. So that's why I threw that in there for my friends in Ohio. Um, oh my God. But, and they would say the same thing. Maybe your kid will end up in Michigan in the worst case scenario or something like that, but everybody has their rival. Um, you know, but I mean, again, that's the thing about the big picture. Every, you can live with food allergy. It is, there are special rules that you have to adapt to, but life can, will, and must go on, you know? 
and maybe therapy will evolve to meet your needs and your sort of, you know, goals, values, and preferences. And maybe it won't. And, and again, either way, it's going to be fine. And that's what we're here to do is to support your choice. Our job is easy. We just need to learn what the options are. We don't have to do anything else, but give you the options. You pick them. Like, it's not our job to tell you what to do. It's our job to sort of tell you how this could work to your benefit and maybe backfire in certain circumstances. But, you know, we are, we are not saying you must do X, Y, or Z. That, that isn't our job personally. That's how that's I exactly it. right. Thank you so much for coming oh, on the welcome. podcast today, Dr. Greenhot. You're welcome. If they're wondering 20 ounces of coffee to fuel that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was quite the interview, right? Dr. Greenhot certainly shoots him straight. He is a no nonsense kind of guy and he's going to tell you exactly how he sees the data. And he and I have different styles, but I completely respect his approach. And I hope you enjoyed hearing his thoughts on food allergy management. Let me know what you liked. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to foodallergyinyourkiddo.com, sign up for my mailing list, and shoot me a message. And of course, I'm an allergist, but I'm not your allergist. So talk with your allergist about what you learned on this episode. God bless you, and God bless your family. Thank you.